0: The Spectator's prestigious Economic Innovator of the Year Award in partnership with Investec, are now in their sixth year. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the success of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. Applications are now open and will close June 16th. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Os Grevenson, and on the podcast this week, Michaela Rong asks if anywhere is safe for Kagami's critics, Emily Rhodes charts the rise of fake libraries, and Cindy Yu reviews a new exhibition at the British Museum on China's hidden century. Up first, Michaela Rong.
2: After weeks of travelling, first Paris, then Kinshasa, I was looking forward to my evening at the L'Horloge du Sud in Brussels. Known for its poisson liboquet, fish wrapped in banana leaf, and other African specialities, the restaurant is popular with the city's African diaspora. I'd been invited by a Pan-African think tank to discuss my book on Rwanda. But it was not to be. The day before, I got a call from the Benin journalist due to chair the event. He sounded rattled. The restaurant owner, he said, had been receiving complaints from pro-government Rwandan groups in Brussels, along with threatening emails and anonymous calls from Rwanda itself. His organisation was telling the owner to hold fast, but in its history of staging contentious African debates, it had never experienced this level of intimidation. Tell him this is just the way dictatorships silence debate, I said. Plenty of African governments do it. You don't understand, said my would-be chair. His voice rising. They are accusing you of being a well-known negationist. They are threatening to take the owner to court and say they are ready to wreck the place. Ah, yes, negationisme, genocide denial. In theory, a crime under Belgian law. As a journalist who in 1994 walked through churches and classrooms in Rwanda where hundreds of men, women and children had been macheted and shot... I have never felt remotely inclined to deny the 1994 genocide. I saw the bodies. On a bad day, I can still recall the whiff of putrefaction. Why on earth would I deny an episode upon which I had once reported? But that misses the point. Negationiste has become a term used by the ruling Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, to refer to anyone who dares to criticise President Paul Kagame. If I was being surreally libelled, so routinely are respectable academics, journalists, and even more grotesquely, members of the Tutsi minority whose families were targeted for elimination by Hutu militiamen and Rwandan army soldiers back in the day. I can only imagine how a Tutsi who lost loved ones in 1994 feels at being slurred in this way for voicing concerns at Kagame's escalating authoritarianism. The irony was striking. My book, now out in French translation, focuses on Kagame's post-genocide track record of transnational repression, the systematic targeting of Rwandan dissidents, journalists, and human rights activists who have fled the country, a campaign that extends from hounding on social media to assassination. With every anonymous phone call and retweet denouncing me as a tropical Nazi, the regime in Kigali was actually confirming my book's central thesis. More bizarrely still, it was attempting to silence a British journalist just when the Home Office's agreement to send unwanted asylum seekers to Rwanda was being challenged in the Court of Appeal. Clumsy timing, to say the least. But subtlety has never been Kagame's or the RPF's strong point, and when it comes to trying to close down events, they have plenty of form. In April, a book launch planned by my French publisher in Paris was scratched when management at the Hotel concerned suddenly decided it could not guarantee security. In South Africa last May, the Institute for Security Studies cancelled a planned seminar with just eight hours' notice after complaints from Rwandan officials. The ISS is one of the few independent think tanks on the African continent and its executive director, a man who might be expected to feel strongly about free speech, promised me at the time that the event would be rescheduled once the Rwandans identified someone willing to join me on a platform. Surprise, surprise, no name was ever forthcoming. And that's the point. However seemingly intellectually self-assured, and for defiant self-confidence, it's hard to beat Kagame and his ministers, Dictatorships are allergic to challenge of any kind, as Professor Philip Renchens, a Belgian-Rwandan expert also, of course, smeared as a negationist, marveled on Twitter. Isn't it weird that not a single RPF supporter, Rwandan or foreign, dares engage in a contradictory debate? They all chicken out, without exception. Predictably, L'horloge du Sud's owner decided it was all too much. A triumphant flyer circulated on social media with the words annulé pour cause de négationisme plastered across my face. But the Conseil Pan-Africain de Belgique think tank rose gloriously to the occasion. It promptly announced that the event was being relocated to a hall on the other side of Brussels. That was a decoy address, a three-man posse, Togolese, Congolese, and Guinean politely checked bona fides on the pavement before directing arrivals to the correct location nearby. Our event was packed, standing room only, and the copies of my book sold out. At the end, I asked Chairman Olivier Dussou if the minders had turned away any potential sabotage. We reckoned there were three. They looked Rwandan, they were asking for the well known And they were extremely insistent, too insistent, he said. Next time they staged a Rwandan event, the organisers would be primed. What's shocking is how this bullying is carried out absolutely routinely on foreign soil, in country after country, by an African regime heavily dependent on foreign aid and international philanthropy. Exploiting EU legislation, originally drafted to outlaw racism and xenophobia, Rwanda tries to impose its narrative in a country where it happens to have a diaspora and an embassy. Too often, it succeeds. If Suella Braverman has her way and the Court of Appeal agrees with last year's judges ruling that the Rwanda asylum scheme is legal, hundreds of people fleeing political persecution in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan and Eritrea could in theory soon be headed Rwanda's way. The mind boggles.
1: That was Michaela Wrong. Next, Emily Rhodes.
3: There is a growing fashion for fake books. Not fake as in written by a series of AI prompts, but fake as in things, cleverly painted empty boxes or a facade of spines glued to a wall designed to mislead the casual onlooker into thinking that they are books. A recent New York Times article highlighted the trend. It featured various interior designers offering spurious arguments in favour of fakes over real books. They can be a practical solution for hard-to-reach shelves, a smart example of upcycling unwanted volumes destined for landfill, useful and humorous storage boxes. Neat, quirky design solutions are, however, the least of it. This fashion signals a profound shift in our attitude to books. Rather than perceiving them as holders of information, stores of stories, we are increasingly perceiving them as just things, albeit pretty things. Paperback, first conceived as a cheap option for the masses, has become seductive, with eye-popping covers featuring expert designs and shiny colours. Jamie Keenan, a veteran book designer whose clients include Penguin, Knopf and Vintage, explains... It's easier now to get special colours or metallics for covers, to get them die-cut or embossed. Everything's much more sophisticated than it was 20 years ago. The current commitment to producing beautiful books came about in part as a reaction to e-books, when those took off in 2006-7, to the sudden ease of consuming books electronically, divorcing their content from their materiality and transforming them into weightless, instantly downloadable and low-cost items, spurred publishers to work hard to make physical editions more appealing. As Keenan says, there's far more understanding of what a cover can do in terms of selling the book. These covers are at their most dazzling when they flash before our eyes in the scroll of social media. Bookstagram, with 90.1 million posts, and BookTok, 138.4 billion views, have had a pronounced impact on sales. It's become unusual to enter a bookshop and not see a BookTok table piled high with bestsellers that owe their success to social media. James Daunt, Waterstones Managing Director and Barnes & Noble CEO, recalls, When BookTok first kicked off, it was very obvious that bookshops as a place of performance effectively providing a backdrop could be a place for it, and that was really exciting. Daunt is known for prioritising attractive displays in his shops and is happy that social media has now been harnessed to amplify that is nothing but good a very positive thing. I am all for anything that increases the popularity of books, but a closer look at our treatment of them on social media has made me think more carefully about what exactly is going on. Of course, there are exceptions, but for the most part, Bookstagram and Booktalk are platforms to share highly styled scenes featuring a book, rather than a nuanced or meaningful engagement with its characters and ideas. Daunt enthuses over the fun young people are having with books, but this fun tends to revolve around a book's appearance, not its content. A sample scroll through Bookstagram reveals the following recent topics. Covers with flowers. Can you spot a favourite type of edge in my shelfie? And Minimalist Monday. If a post does engage with content, it is certainly brief. On Booktop, for instance, you might get a short video, most are under 30 seconds, of someone tearing their hair out with the text, me when the enemies become lovers, or a bullet point flashing up beside a book noting, serious page turner. Hashtag stats confirm the predilection for style over substance. On Instagram, hashtag politics books and hashtag economics books have a mere 1,000 plus posts. Whereas hashtag bluebookstack has 14,000 and hashtag rainbowbooks 90,000. On TikTok, hashtag Book review has 875 million views, but hashtag bookshelf 2.7 billion. This focus on appearance suits social media influence as well. As even the most amateur aspiring influencer knows, the more you post, the more engagement you get. Instagram authorities, such as the social media scheduler Later, suggest posting three to ten times a week, and TikTok recommends one to four videos a day. It is impossible to read enough books to meet this demand, so focusing on how a book looks is a neat cheat. This shift in focus has an alarming impact when taken beyond social media. If we fall into the habit of prioritising how our books look, we might well begin to arrange them by physical feature rather than topic or author. If we arrange our shelves by, say, colour gradient, we might easily look to buy a blue book rather than a great novel. Daunt jokes that he doesn't mind so long as it's a good blue book. However, with the increasing focus on the books outside, it's only a small step to remove the inside altogether. It is a terrible irony that we have worked so hard creating beautiful, covetable objects to save books from death by Kindle, only for our success to signal their demise in a different way. But what does it matter if books as holders of words and worlds become increasingly redundant? We are deep in the digital age, and if our books are becoming empty, then our screens are full of stories told in arresting, attention-grabbing ways. Personally, I treasure the experience of reading a book over engaging with a screen, but most people feel otherwise. A 2021 American survey showed the average reading time was just 16.2 minutes per day, as opposed to 168 minutes spent watching television. Why not consume your drama in eight episodes rather than between paper covers? Who needs a history tome when there's a documentary or a manual when there's a YouTube video? Why shouldn't we put fake books on our shelves if we get our stories elsewhere? The National Literacy Trust recently noted the striking similarity between what children get from reading and what they get from playing video games, including immersion in a story and empathy. Perhaps books were only ever going to have a temporary role as our holders of stories. Before they arrived, we used to come together to share tales and enjoyed the effects of gesture and voice in our lost culture of oral storytelling. Maybe we've missed this in the solitary experience of reading books and that's what we're endeavouring to rediscover via screens. Are talkers, the bards of the 21st century? Even so, those who, like me, still rail against this trend for style over substance must resolve to be a little nosier. The fact is that fake books can convince only if nobody tries to read them.
1: That was Emily Rhodes. And finally, Cindy Yu.
0: By the 1800s, the mechanical clock had become a status symbol for wealthy Chinese. The first arrived with Jesuit missionaries and Portuguese merchants years earlier. But it wasn't until the early 19th century that those outside of the imperial court could afford them. Rich merchant families display their clocks proudly, like their European counterparts, had showed off pineapples. Women's jackets started to be decorated with clock buttons made of enamel, and one family embroidered a clock face onto their baby's silk bib. European aesthetics made their way into other parts of Chinese society too. Traditional ink portraits became colourful and hyper-realistic, inspired by photography. Courtesans learned to play billiards and ate in restaurants decorated like European salons. The artist Wu Youru illustrated these early modern scenes, along with vignettes from Western life. Village cricket played in the English countryside, or New York firemen at work. The pictures were lithographically printed in the Dianshi Hua Huabao, a Shanghai-based magazine founded by a British businessman in 1884. You can see all these works in the British Museum's new show China's Hidden Century. The dark exhibition space is cloistered with glowing paper screens, among which sit more than 300 exhibits that tell the story of Qing China's final century, through elite politics down to everyday life. Curious fusions in fashion, art and household items were created through China's interactions with Europeans. The country was transforming from a feudal empire to a modern republic. This wasn't always a happy or voluntary process. As much as artists and merchants were intrigued by the ideas and aesthetics brought by the foreigners, The foreigners were also, more often than not, brutal in their methods. Colonial European powers were expanding their reach ever eastwards. Cultural histories of Chinese art have often skated over this era, writes co-curator Julia Lovell in the exhibition's companion catalogue, hence hidden. In China, we simply call it the century of humiliation. The last Qing rulers proved no match against their industrialised rivals, who had the hard power of gunboats and muskets and the soft power of Christianity. The Brits added Indian-made opium to the mix. The Chinese typically mark the start of this century with the First Opium War, in 1839. It is worth noting that the war was controversial in Britain from the start. All the alleged aims of the expedition against China are vague, illimitable, and incapable of explanation, save only that of making the Chinese pay the opium smugglers, the Spectator wrote in 1840. Upon defeat in 1842, the Qing signed away Hong Kong to the British in the Treaty of Nanjing, the original copy is on display, borrowed from the National Archives. This would be the first of several unequal treaties, and in the following decades, more territory was carved out by the victors and much treasure taken back to Europe and America. The BM's exhibits are almost entirely from British and American collections. Queen Victoria was even given a Pekingese pooch, who she named Luti. Hubris may be why the Qing never saw the end coming. Eight blue scrolls opened the exhibition is the complete map of all under heaven unified by the great Qing, showing the empire's borders including the new territories of Tibet to the west and Mongolia to the north, forming the basis of the Chinese Communist Party's territorial claims today. Deeper into the exhibition, one hears snippets of Mandarin, Manchu, Mongolian and even Chagatai, a predecessor of modern Uyghur, all languages spoken in this Asian superpower. The Qing were Manchus, not Han Chinese and their empire was multi-ethnic. Dynastic pride was epitomised by the self-satisfaction of the empress dowager Cixi, widow of an emperor and regent to two more. I have often thought that I am the cleverest woman that ever lived. I have heard much about Queen Victoria. Her life was not half as eventful as mine, she said. Later generations would remember Cixi for her contribution to China's downfall. From choosing a boy emperor to extend her own power, to violently ending that emperor's modern reforms after just a 100 days, even as the country desperately needed to adapt to the industrial age. But China's hidden century is all the more interesting for going beyond the political and into the personal, while preserved prints, jewellery and clothing reveal the very human priorities of those who had the misfortune to live through this time. A colourful child's jacket with geometric shapes matched with a handmade hat in the shape of a dragon's head reveal a mother's creativity and her commitment to warding her child from evil. A set of ivory and jade thumb rings show how Han Chinese men adopted nomadic Manchu fashions even as the latter made the former second-class citizens. A primitive peasant raincoat made from palm leaves and straw betrayed the huge economic inequalities of the dying empire. Sisi died in 1908, and after the brief reign of another boy emperor, the Qing dynasty finally spluttered its last in 1912. Manchu queues were cut off as men grew their hair in the Western fashion. Women stopped binding their feet. China's long and brutal 19th century had ended, as a modern republic, led by the Han Chinese, was founded. If only it were easy sailing from there.
1: And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.